Welcome Lori to the platform this morning. She's going to share with us a little bit about LARC and uh, LARC and Domestic Violence Month. That's right. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to all of you because we had a wonderful fundraiser Friday night, and I know that many of you have donated to that. Many of you have been supportive of that, and I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I know last week we had our display here, and the silhouette, and I'm not for sure which silhouette that we had here at the church. I'm going to be honest with you. I have been so sick the last week and a half that I don't really know my own name, but I could at least talk to you today. Those of you that heard me speak Friday night went, oh, she can't even talk. <laughs> A little froggy. But um, I just want to give you up to date. Um, this year we provided services to 583 persons. And of those, 474 or 5 were new people. And so that means that over 90% of the individuals that we provided service to in 2017 were all new people. And so they were new people to service. They weren't people that we've been continuing to provide services to. And this is across our six-county area. We have Grant, Haskell, Morton, Stanton, Stevens, and Seward counties. And so if you look at the state, I always tell people, this is the corner of the state where the three across and the two high. And so we cover a lot of miles. We have advocates in every county um, at least one day a week, if not two days a week in those outer counties, and so it's a lot of traveling, and they go from liberal out. It's not like we have people out there that are that are part of our employment. They, they drive from liberal out and provide those services and then come back. And then we have been in all of the high schools, and I said Friday night, successfully, as of the beginning of this school year, we are now in USD 480, and that's an amazing feat for us because we've been trying and trying for years to be able to provide services and information in USD 480. And we're even beginning to work with the new counselors on the first through fifth grade and then sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. So we've got the primary schools and the second uh, and the middle schools that we're now providing services to. So it's a lot of services that we provide. It's, a, it's staggering to me every year how our numbers continue to go up. And I think that's only because of awareness. I think it's of people like all of you that see our information, you see people in need, and you refer them to us. And that's the biggest thing that you all can do for us is to re, is refer in people to our services, and we appreciate all that you do for us. We're getting ready to run into what we call our giving portion of our year, and so we do a Thanksgiving basket for the neediest of those in our services, and then we also do a Christmas week basket for um, the families as well. I'm going to put you on the spot. What portion of that number that you talked about were children? Oh, I'm sorry. We served 126 children out of that 583 last year. Think about that. And as I said, the thing about those children is when I first started five years ago, we were providing basically what we call secondary domestic violence services to children, and the children number was very low. But now our children number is very high, and the scary part of that is is they're what we call direct sexual assault victims. And so if you think about those children across our area that are being sexually assaulted, and I think the interesting thing is, is guys, the one thing about sexual assault is we tell people all the time, it's not the guy jumping out of the bushes. Yeah. It's, not the per- it's not the woman jumping out of the bushes. And I'm going to say that because women can be perpetrators just like men can. And I think that's the important thing for people to understand. These are people that these children trust. These are their mothers, their fathers, their aunts, their uncles, their brothers, their sisters, 
um, extended family, best friends of families. And so it's important that we teach our children, and that's as we've talked about being in the, pri- in the primary schools, is that kids understand what is safe and what isn't safe. And, what, and we don't talk about what's normal, but we talk about what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. And so hopefully those children see that when we provide these, this information. And if something's going on, then they can disclose. And whomever they disclose to, and the thing I tell people, they say, but are you not um, mandated reporters? We are mandated reporters for anybody under the age of 18. But we always hope that by the time we receive those people into services, that they have disclosed that information to someone else so we don't become their mandated reporter because we want them to be safe when they come to us and everything they tell us stays with us. So we don't want to be caught up in what's going on as far as having to be part of that system Mm -hmm. to provide testimony. So we always want to be the secondary person that actually is told. So normally they're referred to us by law enforcement, by our same nurses at the hospital, and different things. So we do provide a lot of services for children. And one thing we do at Christmas is we put all the children that we have in service on the angel trees. And the angel trees have typically been, and I'm going to say this because I haven't had this conversation yet, but typically Roger Crossman Insurance has an angel tree for us, and then Dylan's also as well. So if you see those angel trees out in the community, those are our kiddos that we're, that we put angel trees out there. And I think last year we had 75 kids we put on the angel tree. We have some moms that say, no, we don't, want our, we don't want our kiddos on the angel tree. We're okay. Things are doing well. But we have some that are just so needy that they really need that. I'm trying to think. We served oh, before school with what, we all, what you all did here for the single parent care day and the other children. I believe that we provided enough stuff for school bags for over 50 kids this year. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of need. But thank you. Well, thank God for Lori and the LARC. And it's, it's really amazing to me that um, on Lori's board are three members of our church, Leonard and George and Belinda. George, you aren't? I'm, okay, I'm sorry. Linda, Leonard and Belinda, okay. For some reason, I thought George was. Uh, it's such an important thing. I mean, think about that. That number of children, that number of clientele that, that have been served, and I just want to add this, you know, I mean, we were grateful for being able to to serve a number of the clients of the LARC for Single Parent Care Day, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, We've given food that Convoy of Hope has has given. Gary and and, and his friend went to to Springfield and brought back an entire trailer load, and we're getting ready to again. And uh, all of that food has, has either gone to needy people right here in our own church, or the LARC, or the Stepping Stone Homeless Shelter. That's being Jesus. Feeding those who are hungry, giving water to those who are thirsty, clothing the naked. That's what Jesus is looking for in his people. So thank you, Lori. Thank you for sharing with us. I do have, before I preach, just one more announcement that came into the office after Belinda had already printed up the other announcements, so I wasn't able to to get it to to her in time to share this. We have a new program in our community, and I know Lori is familiar with this as well. It's called Socks of Love. How many of you know what the number one need of homeless people is? Socks. 
got winter coming. And uh, an organization that is throughout the country, but has just, in my, at least to my understanding, has just come to liberal, has organized a sock drive. Now, unfortunately, this information has come to me only one week before the sock drive ends. It ends on, on November the 4th. But what they are asking is that we donate pairs of socks. What kind? Well, they don't need to be dress socks, put it that way. They need to be socks that will keep people's feet warm. And new ones, yes. We don't, <laughs> yeah, we don't want your socks. <laughs> we want new socks. And, and there's a number of drop-off locations, Brown Shoe Fit, Westlake, Ace Hardware, Standard Supply, Cato, is that the right pronunciation? Yeah. Pink Panther, it's Cato, so I... That you'll think of that. What I mean by that about two o'clock this afternoon, uh, the flower basket, Maurice's, and the Memorial Library, and and so we we encourage you, grab a package of three or six or twelve socks. I can't imagine what it would be like to go without socks and be homeless, but it, it's a huge need. And so wanted to bring it to your attention this morning. And those things need to be donated again by uh, next. Sunday, and uh, they will be distributed uh, following that. So, thank you for indulging me on that one more announcement. Now, we are in part two of our new sermon series, God is Good. God is Good. And we're going to be be doing this sermon series clear through the end of the year. So it's going to encompass all of the holiday stuff and everything else. But I I wanted to start now because there's so much to say about a good God, right? And, And this morning we're in part two. And I would just want to start what I have to say to you by asking you a question. What are you hungry for? I'd probably get a broad range of, of different answers. Some of you might name some food that you're hungry for right now. Some of you who missed the donuts this morning, you might be considering going back and getting one of those, but you're out of luck because they've already been removed. When you ask a question like, what are you hungry for? Many people start looking and examining their physical appetite. Maybe thinking about a big greasy cheeseburger and french fries right now. I don't know. But... There are others who would move beyond just food and say, well, I'm hungry for relationship or or I hunger for people in my life because I'm lonely. Uh, Still others say, you know what, I'm really hungry for work. I've been looking for a job and haven't been able to find one. Uh, The word hunger means something that we really long for. Where do we turn to satisfy our hunger? If you have physical hunger pains, you go to the fridge. You make yourself a sandwich. We also have different types of appetites. In addition to physical appetite, we have the appetite for rest or the appetite, again, for relationships or or the appetite for, for marriage. These appetites, they're good. They're God-given appetites. They're very real to us. But there are certain appetites, one appetite, one hunger, 
in particular that I want to deal with this morning that we should satisfy above all other appetites. Spiritual hunger. What are we hungry for spiritually? I have come to believe that there is only one that can satisfy spiritual hunger. And the psalmist talks about him in Psalm number 63. If you want to go there in your Bibles, it'll be on the screen or it'll be on your Bible app on your smartphone. The psalmist David says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will praise you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He's the bread of life. He's the one, the only one that will satisfy our spiritual craving. Now that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? How many of you have ever had a craving? Some of you ladies who've been pregnant, I know you had cravings. Some of them I don't understand, but there are times when I crave for something. And and my cravings are a lot different than Brenda's. I crave a lot of things that Brenda turns up her nose at. But there are times when I have those cravings, say, for example, wieners and sauerkraut. Yeah. (laughs) I see heads going this way. I see heads going this way. Now, Brenda would turn up her nose at that craving. But not me. And so I have to find a time when she's either gone or she has something else that she's going to finish up eating and all mix me up some wieners and sauerkraut. Not many people like it. Can I just tell you about wieners and sauerkraut on top of mashed potatoes? I think it's on the menu for the marriage supper of the lamb, I'm just saying. (laughs) That sounds good. That does. Anyway, what we see here in Psalm 63 is the psalmist taking the language of hunger and thirst and applying it to God. His seeking and his longing for God are as if he were in a desert where there's no water. In other words, just as water would quench our thirst or quench the psalmist's thirst, he wants and I want and I pray that you want God to be the one to satisfy your spiritual thirst. There are any number of things out there that people are using to satisfy spiritual hunger and thirst. But I'm here to tell you this morning that only God, our God, Jehovah God, can bring lasting satisfaction to the cravings of our soul. Um, I have two goals in this message this morning. My primary goal is to paint such a beautiful, lofty, exalted picture of who God is for us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that we leave here this morning longing for him and that we begin to understand that compared to Christ, there is nothing else in this world that satisfies. That's my first goal. But my second goal is the flip side of the first one. It's this. When Satan tempts us to be satisfied in other things other than Jesus, I want us to learn how to fight against his lies, against his false promises, so that we won't be tempted. Now, to accomplish those goals... I'm going to take you clear back to the beginning, and we're going to go all the way through the Old Testament. Now, is that okay with everybody this morning? It won't take me over five or six hours. Is that okay? No, I have a Reader's Digest condensed version of the New Testament this morning. So I'm going to flip through it real quickly, and I'll have you out of here in time to do whatever you had planned for this afternoon. By the way, I'm going snake hunting this afternoon, just so you'll know. The only good snake is a dead snake, so I'm going to make my contribution to society this afternoon. Pray for me. (laughs) So, as I said, I'm going to begin with some Old Testament passages, and I'm doing that so we'll have a context to understand what my main passage of Scripture is going to be found in Matthew chapter number 4, the first four verses here in just a few moments. But Satan wants to deceive us to believing that God is holding back something from us. That God is not good. That God doesn't provide for us. You see, from creation, God established a picture of how much He loved people who were the prime, uh, the prime focus of His creation. He, he, he created all the other stuff, and then when it got to the good stuff, he created man and then created woman from the side of man. And even then he said, it's very good. And he enjoyed full fellowship and communication with his creation, the man and the woman that he made. And it was complete and undying love for them. Genesis 1 and 2 show us that We were created to live in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Where He would care for us, where He would provide for our every need. And the Garden of Eden was the place of God's presence. It was what we would call His sanctuary, the place where He dwelt. And from the very beginning, we see God establishing this picture of Himself, the sovereign ruler, giving His prized creation, which was man, authority over the rest of creation. And he did that in order that he would care for it, have children who would also reflect God's glory, uh, reflect glory as being the image of God. That was tough to get out for some reason. And spread the glory of God all over the earth. Man would live with God. God would provide for man's every need. And he told Adam... He said, Adam, you can eat from any tree in my garden. Anything that you see here is yours. You are living in my house, my sanctuary, and I will take care of everything. But he didn't stop there. God put a test in there. He also said to Adam, Adam, you can have anything anywhere in this garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
So here's the test in a nutshell. He said to Adam, Adam, are you going to listen to me? Will you obey me? Will you come to me? Will you trust me to tell you what is right and wrong? Will you obey my voice? Well, we know the rest of the story. We come to Genesis 3 and the serpent tempts Adam and Eve with the question. He says, is God really going to provide for you? Is God's provision good enough for you? Now, that's my translation, of course. What, what's happening here is the devil is questioning the promise that God has made to Adam and Eve. He's saying to them, you don't see this right now, but God is holding something back from you. God's withholding something from you. And, and if he really loved you, did you catch that? If he really loved you, he wouldn't withhold anything from you. So therefore, you have to grab it for yourselves. You have to get what God is withholding from you. Well, Adam and Eve quickly discern, he's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's talking about the fruit on that tree. And that must mean that God's up to something. He's, he's got a hidden motivation here. He's withholding something from us so that we won't become like him. Well, you know what happened? They ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, let me just say here that in a very similar way, we are tempted to question God's provision from time to time. I know we, we're not in the garden where we can pick fruit from any tree. But consider this. We are still being asked basically the same question that Adam was asking, or God was asking Adam. Is God faithful or is God unfaithful? What I'm suggesting to you is that we're tempted to question God's provision when we are tempted to take for granted what God has provided for us. I, I know that there are people in this world, in our country, in our community that are struggling with poverty. But we here this morning, we're all living, we're all breathing, we all have the capacity to listen. Life is a blessing. How many of you would agree with that? Life is a blessing. And often we take life for granted being ungrateful... For the life that God has given to us. Most of us eat three meals a day. Some of us eat between those meals. Most of us have clothes. Not having to wear one outfit every day for seven days a week. And then wash it at the end. We don't, most of us aren't that way. In fact, most of us have enough clothes that we have a hard time figuring out what to wear every morning. And yet we're often tempted to be ungrateful because we think God has been stingy with us. We're also tempted toward impatience when it comes to God's provision. Are you praying for a job? Uh, are, are you pray, pay, praying for some extra income? Are you, are you praying for God's provision to put food on your table? You know, we're easily, we're easily tempted to question God's timing. Because his timing is not our timing. Perhaps you've been tempted to say on occasion, 
God, where are you? I, I thought you were supposed to provide for me, God. And, and I need it right now. God, you know that. So, where are you and where is your provision? Perhaps we even question God's provision when we're tempted to become covetous. That's an interesting word, not used much anymore. We have a car, we have a house, we have clothes, we have food. But God, look at their house. Look at their car. Look at the clothes they're wearing. Look at the food they're eating. It's kind of like being up there at one of our summer picnics this summer and we're cooking hamburgers and hot dogs and somebody next to us is cooking a ribeye. Which one do we want to go to? Absolutely. Suddenly our hot dog and our hamburger doesn't look quite as appealing. We begin to envy different kinds of things. We may envy someone else's spouse, someone else's job, someone else's name, or someone else's security. And it leads us to bitterness toward our Heavenly Father for not providing those things for us and We develop this jealousy toward others for what the Father has provided them. But back to the garden. The devil's question. Adam, Eve, are you sure that God's going to provide for you? Did God really say bad things will happen if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, Adam and Eve were, or Adam and God, excuse me, They're living together in this garden and Adam had absolutely anything he could desire. And yet he traded that for a piece of forbidden fruit. Think about that. He had everything and he traded it for a piece of forbidden fruit. Now before you shake your head in unbelief at that statement as I'm tempted to do, let me just say we do the same thing. We throw away everything that God has for us by listening to the devil and being satisfied in other things. When we question God's provision, we turn elsewhere provision. Often it's ourselves. Our own desires, our own appetites are the fertile ground for the enemy to tempt us to disobey God. Not that having desires is necessarily bad. But Satan can use our desires to take advantage of us. God promises to satisfy our every desire, but Satan makes us a contrary promise. A false promise. Well, if you'll just eat of this fruit, you'll be completely satisfied. You won't have to worry about whether or not God has withheld something from you. (coughs) Needless to say... Adam and Eve failed the test. They disobeyed God's word. They traded it all for a piece of fruit. So God judged Adam, and from that moment on, Adam was going to be removed from the garden. And you come to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 17, and we're told this. God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice. I'm not going to talk about that very often. But because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns 
and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. He traded all that God had made available to him for a piece of fruit. And now it's going to be really hard for Adam and Eve to sustain themselves from the produce of the land on which they live. You see, man was corrupted because of Adam's sin. And we, every one of us here, we are all descendants of Adam. Which means that every one of us here are born into sin with the same deficiencies that came to Adam's life. Our appetites are corrupted. Our desires are perverted. We swing from natural desires to sinful satisfaction. And we pervert and we distort God's provision in the effort to try to satisfy our own selves. Our own desires. Thankfully, in that same chapter, God promised that that wasn't going to be the final story. The serpent had not won. And God would one day send his son to remedy the problem that Adam and Eve caused. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, the first messianic prophecy in the word of God, says that God would send a child, and that child from the woman will strike the serpent's head. Now, as we see in later chapters in Genesis, for example, Genesis 12 and, and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, it will be through a child, it will be a child through Abraham's offspring, particularly Isaac and then Jacob and then Israel. But God was already implementing the plan that he had laid before the foundations of the world began to send his son to remedy a problem that we could not hope to bring satisfaction to. We move on. Through Abraham, God raised up a nation called Israel so that the world might know of the Father's love and care for a group of people that He had chosen to be His people. Through promises made by God to Abraham, God was trying to bring His people back to His His sanctuary, His dwelling place, where He could care for and provide for His people. Like Adam, the people of Israel were, were God's treasured possession. God says in Exodus chapter 19, verse number 5, Now if you'll listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples on the earth. Although the earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So just like Adam, God raises up these people of Israel to be a priestly, kingly nation that would represent the rule of God throughout the earth. Nations were to look upon that little nation of Israel and say, boy, their God really is God. Their God, Jehovah God, he is God. The God of the Israelites is the God of all creation. He's the only one true God. That was what God wanted the nation of Israel and their reputation to be. God even called a man named Moses. He said, I want you to lead my people to a land that flows with milk and honey. A land that I have promised to, get to, provide, uh, to give to them to provide for their every need. And so you see God trying to bring his people back to a place that he's prepared for them so that he can provide for them and care for their every need. But guess what? Just like Adam and Eve, God's people rebelled against God. 
You go to Exodus chapter number 16, we see God's people leaving the land of slavery in Egypt. God has, by miraculous signs and wonders, brought about Pharaoh's release of God's people. And Moses is leading them out of the land of Egypt toward the land that God has promised them. And they begin going through this wilderness, heading there, and what happens? They begin to complain, and they begin to question God's provision. As with Adam, this was a test. Are they going to trust God to be their father and their provider? No. Instead, they complain something along these lines. Why did you even bring us out here, God? Did you just bring us out here to kill us out in the wilderness? You brought us back to Egypt. Look, back there in Egypt. I wish we were back there. They're willing to to throw away the promise of God's presence for leeks and cucumbers and meat pots. Yeah. Because they refuse to obey God. They refuse to acknowledge God's faithfulness. And since they didn't obey God's word, we're told that in Numbers 13, that they, sent, they arrive at the border of the promised land and they send in these spies into the promised land, 12 of them. And 10 of them come back and report that the, the produce that God has created in this land that he's brought them to, it, it's amazing. Clusters of grapes so big that you put them on a pole, it takes two men to carry a cluster of grapes. God's provision is, is amazing. But you know that story well, too. Those ten of those spies came back and said, but that's not all that's big there. The men of that country, they make us feel like grasshoppers. There is no way that we can possess that land. Well, two of the spies came back and said, you know what? The grapes are big. The men are big. But God said he's going to give it to us. I think we need to go with what God says. But the people of Israel listened to the report of ten rather than the report of the two. And as a result, God had to let them wander in that wilderness for a total of 40 years until that entire generation of God's people died off in that wilderness with the exception of those two spies, Caleb and Joshua. But hope still wasn't lost because then we move to the book of Deuteronomy. We find a new generation of Israelites rising up and God began preparing those young people that were spared to enter this promised land. And you come to Deuteronomy 6 and uh, chapter 6 through 8, you find that Moses is preparing God's people to enter the land that God promised where he would live with them and care for them and again provide for their every need. But guess what? You go to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 31. God tells Moses that even these people, this younger generation, they just don't get it. They're going to go into the land and they're going to turn away from me to worship other gods. It's amazing, isn't it? Even before they touch foot in the land that God's promised, God knows that they're going to disobey him. 
But even then, hope isn't lost. God's going to take care of the disobedience problem, remember? So you flash forward years down the road and, and you find that God's people, the Israelites, they find themselves being exiled to a land where they were once again under slavery and bondage. And that, that happened because they continued to disobey God. But God promises to them in the book of Ezekiel chapter number 36 that He's going to bring about a new covenant where He's going to remove their hearts that have become hardened like rock. He tells them in Ezekiel chapter number 36, beginning with verse number 26, these words, He's going to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Hearts that beat for Him. He's also, now this is very important, he said he's also going to put his spirit in them. He's going to cause them to obey. Now, now, hang in here with me. He's going to cause them to walk in his ways, and that's good news because God, who demands obedience from the beginning... Now says, I'm going to empower your ability to obey by putting my spirit within you. That's a wonderful promise, by the way. He's given us his Holy Spirit as our paraclete, the one who comes alongside of us to help us to obey God. We kind of proved we couldn't do it on our own. I kind of proved that often. That I need His Spirit to come along beside me and beat up that old bully, the devil, whenever he jumps out of the bush and tries to tempt beat me up. That's the way that it works, you know. He's going to put His Spirit inside of us. And He's going to empower the, us with the ability to obey. The God who makes demands of His people is going to ensure by grace and power through a new heart through His Holy Spirit, that God's people will ultimately follow Him and obey what He's told them to do. Now, Adam was God's son. Israel was God's son. But then we come to my text. That wasn't an introduction. That was the most of it. I'm So, breathe easy. We come to Matthew chapter number 4. But before we get to Matthew 4, we come to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, that one, that long chapter of the begats, you know which one I'm talking about? The one that you always skip over in your Bible reading? Here's what we're told in Matthew 1. That Jesus is from the lineage of both Abraham and David. He is the one to whom all those Old Testament generations pointed. He's telling us, this child that I'm getting ready to send you, he's your hope. He's your hope. He's going to be the faithful, obedient son who will represent the rule of God over the earth. He's identified in Matthew 3.17 as the beloved son, the one in whom the father is very pleased. And then we come to Matthew 4. Now let's, let's just quickly... Read that together. Matthew chapter 4, just the first four verses. Here, here's, here's what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted, gone without food, for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, I can imagine that. But then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see what just happened here? I'm guessing that after 40 days of fasting, no food, nothing, it's no surprise whatsoever that Jesus is hungry. And just like us when we get physically hungry, I'm guessing somewhere in the person of the human Jesus, he's saying, man, I'm hungry. I sure wish I had something to eat. I desire food. Remember what I said a while ago about Satan taking our desires and corrupting them? He sees his opportunity with Jesus. He's physically hungry. So he says, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, you could take these stones here and turn them into bread and satisfy your appetite. But Jesus, knowing what he was trying to do, speaks the word to him. Matthew 4, Jesus is identifying himself with Adam, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel. You find these stunning parallels between Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy 8. And Jesus is identifying himself not just with that host. He's identifying himself with us. Because his goal is to save people from their sins. Here he is fasting for 40 days. Interesting that he fasts one day for each of the years that the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. He's been led into the wilderness by, are you ready for this? By the Spirit of God. He's been taken to this place of temptation by the Spirit of God. And he goes through this extended period of fasting. And in the midst of, this, of his hunger, we see the test for Jesus. Where is he going to turn? Will he respond like Adam who threw away everything for a piece of fruit? Will he respond like Israel who threw away everything for cucumbers and leeks and meat from a flesh pot? The temptation... For Jesus here in Matthew 4 is to throw away everything that God has given to him for a piece of bread. Now I hope you understand what's at stake here. In order to fully understand what's at stake in Matthew 4, you have to go to the book of Hebrews chapter number 2. There in verse number 14... The author says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he, speaking of Jesus, also shared in these same things. The writer is telling the people that he's writing to, Jesus was human just like you. He was tempted 
in ways just like you're tempted. So he has something in common with you. You've got flesh and blood in common with Jesus. There's this connection between our humanity and Jesus coming as a baby. And and then not only did he come as a baby, but Luke chapter 2, verse number 52 says that as he grew, he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God and with man. He had to take on humanity in order to save us. Do you realize that in this test in the wilderness, in Matthew chapter number 4, our ability to be saved is at stake right here. It's at stake right here. Because if Jesus gives in to this temptation, He's not counting on, on obeying or being faithful to His heavenly Father. He's relying on something else to satisfy his desires. Jesus, the true representative of God in heaven, the image of the invisible God, is tempted. And here is his test. Jesus, you're getting ready to go into public ministry. So you're going to be tested as to whether or not You are going to be the faithful, obedient son, whether or not you will obey God's voice and keep God's covenant promises to his people. Jesus is the one whom God has sent to crush the serpent's head back there in Genesis. Remember that? But he has to do it not as God. He has to do it as man flesh and blood just like you and I are and then the writer to Hebrews goes on in verse 15 he says to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death for it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels but to help Abraham's offspring friends there are no redeemed angels just throwing that in the writer goes on therefore he had to be like his brothers That's us. Had to be like us in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he had to be tempted like we are in every respect. He had to face the devil in every respect just as we do because verse 18 says, for he himself was tested and has suffered since he, has, he himself was tested and has suffered, he's able to help those who are tested. Okay, let me cut to the chase. How many of you are ready for me to cut to the chase? Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to bear the penalty for God's wrath against sin. God's wrath was poured out upon his son Jesus as a man. He was human. He had to suffer the horror of the cross. When the enemy came to him in verse 3 of Matthew 4, he says to Jesus, If if you are the Son of God, tell those stones to become bread. In essence, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, you might be a man, but you have divine power. And with that divine power, you can turn stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. And Jesus says, man can't live by bread alone. 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you realize, friends, what's happening here? Jesus did not persevere through his temptation by simply calling on his heavenly powers. He didn't do it that way. He faced temptation in his humanity, filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. Remember, the Spirit led him into that temptation. He was showing the enemy, you have no power against the plans and the purposes of my spirit. Now, friends and friends of 2018, that ought to be really good news. The enemy has no power to those who are led by the spirit of God. No power. We now can overcome temptation. We don't have to do it on our own. Jesus fully satisfies our desire to please God. He makes it possible for us to please His heavenly Father. Jesus says to Satan, You know what? I'd rather obey God than eat food. Even though my desire, my flesh is hungry, I'd rather obey my heavenly Father than eat food. To obey is better than a piece of fruit. To obey is better than leeks and cucumbers. Jesus submits himself to the Father's will and he does it to save us. I'm hurrying, I really am. What he's doing at that very moment, he begins to crush the old serpent little by little. He rejects his temptations. He empowers his people to begin to reject the enemy's temptations. And three and a half years later, he goes to the cross. And he said, says to him, in essence, Satan, you've held over my people this threat of death. The penalty for their sin, you've held it over them for 4,000 years. And when he hung on that cross and when he breathed his last He accomplished the work that he set out to do when he said, it is finished. Satan, no longer can you hold the threat of death over him. Because three days later, the dead human Jesus came out of that grave. Alive. Death has been overcome. Death no longer has a hold on those who trust in God and who trust in the saving work of Jesus. Death no longer holds fear over our heads. You know what? The moment that I quit breathing down here, my first breath is going to be celestial air. Because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for me that where He is, there I may be also. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I know that there are people that think God would never want anything to do with them because of what they've done. I know that there are people, myself, probably at the top of the list, who've been so disobedient over periods of time. People who have, like me, taken God's Word, taken God's grace, and abused it and trashed it. 
But the good news is that Jesus is the obedient one and he has obeyed on our behalf. He's taken the penalty. That's a good Jesus. Do you understand how good that is? We couldn't cut it. But Jesus made it possible. He sent His Spirit to us, not just to lead us and guide us and direct us, but He helped sent His Spirit to help us to become obedient and faithful to God. He's our power source. When the enemy comes against us like a flood, the Bible says the Lord will raise up a standard against him. That standard is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells the tempter, these people belong to me. You can't have them. And he empowers us to make the right choices when faced with temptation. Why? Because God is wanting to take us to a place where he'll always provide for our every need. Like Adam in the garden, we'll be able to eat from any tree. We'll live in the presence of God. And God will provide everything we have need of. That's the Bible. That's the Word of God in a nutshell, friends. And it all speaks to the goodness of God. He is so very good. I know that some of you during the course of our service took communion, and that's fine. Should have probably made that clear because that's the way we've been doing it. But for the rest of us that may not have partaken in communion at that time, or if you, even for those of you who have and want to do it again, that's fine. What I want to say to you this morning is that we have fleshly appetites, we have earthly hunger and desires. But for our spiritual desires, there's only one that will satisfy. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse number 35, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Verse number 48, I think I said 35. If you satisfy people with bread, or cucumbers, or leeks, or flesh pots, or, and you never offer them the hope of Jesus Christ, they're going to die their bellies will be full, but they're going to die empty. Because Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. When we come to the table of the Lord, it's a picture of a longing that we have. And that longing is one day we're going to sit around the table of the King. And every desire of our life will be satisfied in that moment. And when we observe communion, as we're getting ready to do, musicians, would you come? We are saying, Lord, I mean, you, you may say this. It's what I often do. Lord, I've tried this and I've tried that and I've tried the other to bring satisfaction and fulfillment to my life. But I've found that only you can fill the hunger, the desire of my soul.
And not only did he fulfill our desire for our spiritual appetites, he fixed a big problem for us. He fixed a problem that kept us separated from God. And he's saying, if you'll accept the saving work of my shed blood, you can be reconciled to God. You can punch your ticket for that place where God's going to provide everything for you and withhold nothing from you. Is your ticket punched this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed. (coughs) Say, Pastor, I didn't realize that there was such a symbolic importance to Jesus being the bread of life. Didn't realize there was such an importance about Jesus being the water that satisfies. I'm here to tell you this morning, friends, God had a plan. It started with Genesis 1. And it's going to end with Revelation 22. Where those who are obedient, those who trust in God's faithfulness, those who trust in God's provision, will be with Him in His dwelling place forever and ever. And as we come to the table of communion this morning... Paul instructs us that when we come to this table that we are to examine ourselves. To see if the things that he provided for us in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood are sufficient for the appetites of our life or if we're still trying to fulfill those needs of ours with things that momentarily satisfy 